If you'd open your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And we are going to begin reading verse 36. And we'll read it through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's bow and ask the Lord to bless. Father, this morning we come upon holy things, for here we see the gospel. It would be easy for us to assume we know it and let our mind drift to other places. But Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take this word and batter through our cynicism, our skepticism, our unbelief, our assumptions, and help us to see the glory of Jesus and to experience the wonder of forgiveness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message this morning is Two Sinners and a Savior. It's one of my favorite texts in uh, Scripture because in this one scene you have the drama of the gospel. You have sinners both in desperate need of redemption and salvation. One sees it and finds it. The other does not see his need and does not find an answer to that need. And in the middle of these two sinners, you have a glorious Savior. The text begins by um, just setting the scene. A Pharisee has invited Jesus to come and have lunch, supper, 
to have a meal. Of course, it's an it's a experience of, of great fellowship and intimacy. That This would be an um, invitation that Jesus would certainly respond to as a gracious thing to do. And uh, he comes to uh, the Pharisee's house and he's reclining at the table. And then we're introduced to a woman. This is a sinful woman. We're, we're told that explicitly in the text. She's a woman of the city. Luke doesn't tell us exactly the nature of her sin, but because he labels her a woman of the city who was a sinner, it's almost certain that this is a, a person who has in some way uh, fallen into sexual sin uh, particularly. Sexual sin would be the sin above all the sins that a person could commit, particularly a woman that would label you for the rest of your life uh, to be a sinner. It's possible she was a prostitute. It's also possible that she had had an affair in her past, or maybe she'd become pregnant out of wedlock and so had been shamed in that way. But any of those things would have uh, replaced her irredeemably outside the bonds of uh, the righteous, outside the boundary of a normal Jewish um, believing, a believer, right? She would be just known as the sinful woman. That would be her label. That would be the banner over her head. That's what she wore around her shoulders as she walked through the town. It, it's hard for us living in a shameless culture to understand the reality of, of that day and age where shame would be attached to people uh, in a very uh, intentional, specific way uh, if you had fallen into this sort of sin, and again, particularly if you were a woman. Phil Riken in his commentary uh, shares a letter that he received from a, a Christian woman in the Middle East as she reflected on this text she wrote to Riken and said this, I'm not sure one can really begin to grasp how shocking this story is unless one has spent time in the Middle East. The worst sin a woman can commit is to have lost or to appear to have lost her virginity outside of marriage. The most important asset she has as a woman is her reputation. The whole honor of the family hangs on the reputation of its women. If a woman has nothing but her reputation as a chaste woman, she always has a chance to succeed. If she has everything but her reputation, she is lost before she begins. This is why families today um, in the Middle East still uh, will bring incredible punishment and sometimes even death upon a woman who has fallen into sexual sin because the family's honor, you see, is at stake. And so this is, this is a lost woman. This is a, a woman who uh, has been labeled, entitled um, as a sinner specifically. She is a shamed person. Everyone in town would know the truth about her. And she shows up at Simon's dinner party. It's clear that she has heard that Jesus is there. We're, we're told that hearing that Jesus was uh, reclining at Simon's house. She knew about Jesus. It's very possible. In fact, I would say it's likely she'd heard Jesus preach because as she comes to um, meet Jesus at Simon's house, she comes with a believing heart. 
Notice she doesn't stumble upon Jesus. She doesn't just happen to be in the vicinity when Jesus shows up and performs some miracle. She is intentionally going to Simon's house specifically because she's heard that Jesus is there and she's come prepared to offer this sacrifice of praise and worship. She's come with an alabaster jar of ointment that she is going to use to anoint Jesus. She knows why she's there. She knows who Jesus is. She understands to some level that Jesus is a friend of sinners or she would have never shown up in the first place. She would not be there. I want you to try to imagine the courage it took for this woman to enter into this setting. It was common in those days if someone would have a guest over to dinner, particularly a a well-respected member of the community, which the Pharisee would certainly be, uh, the, the dinner would probably be held in a courtyard in the middle, in the middle of the home. And uh, it was not uncommon for people of the community, upon hearing that there was some special guest, to sort of make their way by and stop and observe. They would not participate in the meal, but they would stand on the outside and, and just sort of listen into the conversation. That was an accepted part of social custom. So there would have been a small crowd then gathered around, uh, around the outside of the courtyard listening to the conversation taking place around the table. The, the crowd would be almost exclusively men. The people at the table certainly would be exclusively men. And remember, she's a labeled woman. She's someone who has... Um, been scorned publicly. She's been scorned uh, just in her life going through the streets of the town. And people who have been labeled this way as as sinners, as failures, as scandals in a sense, it's just common human nature that there's no desire to go hang with those who've so labeled them. That is why the sinners of our society don't tend to flock to churches because they assume, far too often rightly so, that, that church people are the ones who label them as failures and sinners and scandals. And so no matter how, hurt, how hardened a person might be in their heart, no one likes to be ridiculed. No one likes to be scorned or shamed. It took amazing courage for her to go into this room of men. And she knows whose house this is. It's Simon's house. Simon is the Pharisee. Simon would be one of the leaders of those who would scorn or despise her. She knows what Simon thinks of her, and she would probably rightly assume that that everyone else in the room thinks the same thing. It almost, um, it just, it's heartbreaking to think of this woman, this sinful woman, this labeled woman entering into that room. She's walking into a cauldron of self-righteousness and perversion. I think it's hard for me as a man to even describe what's taking place. I think many of you uh, women have an intuitive sense of it, that this woman is walking into a room of men who despise her, but because of her loose past, would also in their hearts be checking her out. Self-righteousness has wicked, perverse um, foundations. So she's she's the one we've heard about. So she's the loose woman. If she was a prostitute, it would simply have been true that some of the men who most publicly shamed her would have been the most likely to privately solicit her. So what in the world is she doing at Simon's house? Why is she there? There's no 
human explanation for it. But the text tells us why she's there. She's there because she heard Jesus was there. And so when she comes to this gathering, she doesn't loiter. She knows what she's about. She's there to give thanks. She's there to honor Jesus. She's there to worship Jesus. And so she comes into the courtyard. She identifies Jesus reclining at table. He would be, uh, boys and girls in those days, uh, they didn't sit at tables like we do on chairs, but they would recline. They would lean on one, usually on their left a hand, they would be reclining, and they would eat then with their right hand. Their feet would sort of trail out uh, behind them. So she sees Jesus. She sees him reclining at the table, and she makes her way towards him. She's, she's come there to do the thing that her heart desired to do. She's come there to, to anoint Jesus' feet, to offer him this gift, this one little token of her gratitude, her appreciation, her thanksgiving, and her joy. She had it all planned out. Except, I think, for the tears. I don't think she planned on this happening. No one likes to fall apart in public. Particularly maybe this woman, who already is the object of of scorn. But but what happens is she, she falls apart. She comes and she sees Jesus and she comes to his feet and suddenly finds herself weeping. The Greek word's very strong. She's not just crying. She's, she's sobbing. Tears are pouring from her eyes, pouring down her cheeks. And as she's holding the feet of Jesus, she's literally wetting the feet of Jesus with her tears. She's come undone. She's sobbing, crying. Her nose is beginning to run. Right there in the middle of Simon's dinner party, there's this woman who's just become a mess, a sobbing, weeping mess. And everyone around the table would be thinking, what in the world is going on? Why is she crying? Well, these are not the tears of remorse. They're not the tears of of grief. These are tears of love, tears of gratitude, overwhelming gratitude and joy. You know, it's strange that when when people are happy, they laugh. But when they are overcome with joy, they weep. In fact, it's particularly the joy of gratitude, the joy of love that makes them weep. I I just saw a a video recently of a young woman who was deaf. Maybe you've seen this. And she was deaf for all all her life. And the doctors were able to fix the problem. And they have this video of the first time this young woman heard her husband's voice. And a big smile uh, breaks over her face. And then she just covers her, her face in her hands and begins to weep. Just overcome. I've not done a study on this. I would think that people break into tears most easily and often, not simply for the sake of joy, but but the joy of gratitude, the joy of receiving some amazing, unexpected, and undeserved kindness and gift. Uh, uh, Wayne Beanster just shared with us uh, when we were interviewing him that he had received a gift, completely unexpected, from someone who wanted to help him with his schooling. And Wayne testified he cried. Grown man crying. Why do we cry when we receive such kindness? Because we know we don't deserve it, and yet there it is. And all the love that's behind it is there for us to receive, and it's just too much. It's overwhelming. Well, that's where she is. 
She's, she's weeping and weeping with joy, weeping with gratitude, with thanksgiving, and with love for Jesus. She, she sensed, she being the sinful woman who's been labeled all her life or, or since the event happened. She's known as the failure, known as the one who God despises, known as the one who has... Um, who has shame attached to her, and there's nothing that can, that can release her from the bonds of her guilt, release her from her reputation and her shame. And then she meets Jesus. And somehow in Jesus' preaching, in Jesus' acts and his miracles, she sensed that God had come, and there was a way to be set free. There was a way to be made new. There was a way to be relabeled, no longer being uh, identified with shame. She could be forgiven. And it just overwhelmed her. There's a fantastic testimony um, online, if you want to go check it out. Christianity Explored is the website. And they have a, a part of their website uh, called Real Stories. And if you go and you hit the, the story of Deb, it, I was tempted to show it here, but I, I didn't have the guts. I, uh, <clears throat> so go home and watch it. Deb is... Um, She's probably in her mid-30s and uh, just confesses that she was uh, sleeping around. Uh, one of her boyfriends got her hooked on heroin. And um, she started, the first time she started reading a Bible was um, when she was high on heroin. And just um, sensed that um, her life was a mess. And so she ends up in a church. Wow, there's a service going on. If I, if I remember right, it was a Good Friday service. And she was stunned by the message that she heard of a God who was willing to love people like her. And, and she said, she suddenly just, she realized it was true. It was all true and that, that she was in big trouble unless she was made right with God. But, but then the, as, the, as the service continued, she realized that um, Jesus, this man named Jesus had gone to the cross and had died for her, bearing her sin, and that she could be forgiven because of Jesus. And she says she was just sobbing and sobbing in the service, just weeping because of the amazing thought that in spite of all of her sin, God loved her, and God in his love gave his son to die for her. And she was weeping with joy. I sobbed and I sobbed, she said, knowing that he had died on that cross for me, for my sin. And she wipes a tear away as she's telling the story. That's what's going on here. This woman is weeping, overwhelmed with, with, with love and gratitude. And then, and then she does a shocking thing. A scandalous thing. At least to everyone in the room, she... Standing behind him at his feet. So Jesus is reclining. She's standing there. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. It was considered a very shameful thing for a woman to let down her hair in public. There would have been no greater punishment under Jewish law if she had removed her clothing. 
When a woman was married, she bound up her hair the, the morning after her, her marriage, her wedding, and that was then how she appeared in public. You see, her hair is her glory. Her hair is her beauty. And no one is allowed to see her glory, to see her beauty, except her husband. It is for his eyes alone. And so the, the Talmud went so far as to say that a man could divorce his wife for displaying her hair to another man. She is doing something that is taboo, forbidden, that is seen with great, it's shameful. But it's exactly what she does. Everyone in the room would be shocked. This woman lets down her hair, her, her glory, and, and she gives it in a sense to Jesus. She's wiping his feet with her hair. Brazen disregard for public decorum, for social mores. Everyone around the room would have been shocked. Everyone would have thought to themselves, what in the world is she doing? And the answer is she's worshiping. She's worshiping. Here's this person weeping, sobbing, wiping Jesus' feet with her unloosed hair, and all the while she's kissing his feet. Complete display of, of abandoned love. She's, she doesn't care what people think. She's willing to be seen for what she is. She is the sinner. She needs divine favor, but she has found it in Jesus, and she is absolutely lost in her love for Christ, in her delight in Jesus, and in her worship of her Lord, and she does not care what people think. Reminds me of King David in 2 Samuel, when they went to get the ark, and they're bringing it back, and David dances before the Lord, apparently without clothing. Just utter abandonment of proper public decorum. And, and his, his wife, the daughter of King Saul, who knew how kings ought to behave, she saw him worshiping the Lord that way, and she despised him in her heart. And she never bore any children under the judgment of God. So why did David do that? Why did David cast aside all concern for what people thought? Because David was utterly lost in his love for and worship of his God. Absolutely given away to it. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever just felt like that? You just didn't care what people thought? It's hard. Sometimes you feel like you, you, just, you just want to raise your hand and worship the Lord. And then you think, well, what are people around me going to think? They're going to think I've, you know, gone charismatic or that I'm just going over the edge here. I'm trying to make a show. No, maybe, maybe they would just think you, you just love Jesus. And you, you just wanted to worship Jesus and you didn't care what people thought. My first experience with this, frankly, and again, I, I've told this this. Before, but as, as I'm studying this text, I thought, I know what that looks like when I, the first time I went to First Assembly of God, and I saw as a 22-year-old cocky little guy that thought he had everything figured out, and I saw people worship Jesus with abandon, without caring what people thought. I walked out of that service two and a half hours after it started, and I said to my wife, I don't know what we do, but that looks like worship. Just people giving themselves away to the worship of of God, the worship of Jesus Christ. Now I know that has its there's there's its own issues there. I'm just saying 
we tend to think that God is not pleased with going overboard, that God is displeased with public displays of emotion and affection and joy. Well, let me ask you, does Jesus seem upset? Does Jesus seem concerned? Does Jesus seem offended in this story? No. Who's offended? Simon's offended. The Pharisee is offended. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for he's a sinner. See, Simon had seen everything he needed to see to know everything he needed to know about Jesus. We don't know exactly why he invited Jesus over, but most likely it's to examine him. Simon, being in his own mind a a fair-minded man, would have said, you know, I've heard the stories about Jesus. I've heard some of the criticisms about Jesus. I'll just have him over and find out for myself. I'll ask him some questions. I'll see what he says. I'm, I'm not quick to judge. And so he asks Jesus over, and, and, and um, he's determined he's going to give Jesus a fair hearing before he makes up his mind concerning this teacher that everyone's talking about. Well, at this point, he'd seen enough to know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is no prophet of God. If Jesus were a prophet of God, he would have known who she was, much less what she was. And knowing that she was a sinner... He would have despised her if he was a prophet of God. Knowing that she was a sinner, he would have avoided her. Knowing that she was a sinner, that she was unclean spiritually, he would have rebuked her for her outrageous display. And he didn't do any of that. Simon knew who the woman was. He knew what she was. And now he knew who Jesus was. Jesus was a fake, a fraud, a charlatan. He's ignorant about the spiritual nature of things. He was ignorant about who she was. Case closed in Simon's mind. Oh, friends, the incredible, impenetrable blindness of self-righteousness. Self-righteous people are the blindest people walking planet Earth. No matter how moral they might be, no matter how knowledgeable they might be, they are utterly blind to the things of God. And that's Simon. Well-respected in town. But you can imagine in his mind, Simon is already looking forward to coffee break tomorrow morning with his Pharisee friends, telling them what he had discovered about Jesus. He could imagine already the shocked look on their faces as he told them what had just happened. They would not be able to believe this woman's brazen display of impropriety. And they would shake their heads with admiration for the way that Simon had so clearly and cleverly deduced who Jesus really was. It was going to be a good day tomorrow. And then Jesus woke him up from his reverie with a question. Jesus answering him. Don't you love that? Simon is thinking these things in his mind. Hasn't said a word. Didn't need to. Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And you can almost hear the sneer in Simon's voice as as he responds, say it. 
teacher. There's nothing Jesus could say or do now that would change his mind. The case was closed. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, 500 days wages. The other owed 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon seems a bit confused by the question. His qualified answer, well, I suppose, suggests that in Simon's mind, he's going, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Why, why is Jesus avoiding the issue? Why is he ignoring the glaring scandal in the room? Why does he ask this odd, pointless question? Well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus shows him that he is dealing with the glaring scandal in the room. And that glaring scandal is the self-righteous, unloving, and unforgiven heart of Simon. And notice how Jesus absolutely destroys this guy. He said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? <laughs> what kind of question is that? There's nothing anyone in the room is looking at. Do you see this woman, Simon? Because he didn't see her at all. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. It was common custom, of course, when you received a guest into your home that you would, you would greet them with a kiss on both cheeks and you would provide water either for your servant to wash the feet of that, of that person or, or for them to do it themselves. You would maybe provide some oil to anoint their, uh, the, their feet or, or even their, or their hair. But it would, you, you would welcome them. That, that was just a given. That's, that's how you treated guests. Jesus says, Simon, you didn't do any of that. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It's clear who Jesus thinks is the scandalous person in the room. You see, the question has suddenly turned before everyone was asking, why is this woman doing these things? And now they're asking, why didn't Simon do any of those things? You see, the irony here is incredible. Simon was thinking, as the woman exposed herself, that Jesus had also been exposed. The woman was exposed to be a sinner who needed grace. Jesus is exposed as a Savior who gives grace. That's what's really happening. And Simon is exposed it's just a self-righteous, wicked, wicked, unforgiven, dead man, unreconciled to God, who has no love for God. Simon, you see Jesus saying, just Simon, why, why didn't you do any of these things? And the answer in the parable is, you don't love Jesus. Simon, why don't you love me? Everything that she's doing signifies, testifies to her love for Jesus. Simon, why don't you love Jesus? And the devastating answer to the question is because he has not been forgiven. He hasn't been forgiven. Simon doesn't love because he hasn't experienced the love of God. 
You see, friends, from heaven's perspective, there's no difference between Simon and the woman, or very little at least. Maybe Simon is the 50 denarii sinner, and she's the 500 denarii sinner, but they're both bankrupt. They can't pay. If you're bankrupt, you're bankrupt. The the bank is not interested that, that your bankruptcy isn't quite as severe as that bankruptcy. You can't help yourself. You can't fix the problem. But see, one person has been forgiven, and that person loves. And the other person doesn't love because they haven't been forgiven. And just notice how the text sets it up. Jesus doesn't say that she's been forgiven because she loves much. Jesus says she loves much because she's been forgiven. The grace comes first. The experience of the love of God comes first. You cannot possibly love God until you've experienced the grace of God, until you've sensed the love of God for you. You see, but Simon couldn't experience those things because he refused to deal with the reality of his sin. And so not seeing his sin, he could not confess his sin. And not confessing his sin, he could not be forgiven his sin. He could never experience the grace of God. He could not experience the love of Christ. Do you know how many Christians there are in the pews of churches who are in exactly the same position? They're good people. They're convinced they're good people. Sure, they're not perfect. They'll tell you that. But they're trying their best. And they go to church. And they send their kids to the right schools. And they do it the right way. And they're, they're, they're offended to think that the, the prostitute walking down the aisle with tattoos on her arms, that that person weeping before Jesus Christ, that that person somehow could be more readily accepted to God than they are. And yet it's exactly the truth. It's exactly the truth. If you don't come to Jesus as a prostitute, you don't understand grace. If you think I'm wrong on that, (laughs) come and talk to me. Do you realize the greatest lovers of Christ are the greatest sinners who recognize they've been forgiven? Ever hear of a man named John Newton, a slave trader? The man who wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You want to see people who delight in grace go to a prison. I remember going to the Folsom, uh, um, I think it was Folsom Prison. It was one of the maximum security prisons in California when I was in, in the seminary. And I went and I preached in the, um, on, on, uh, on, uh, in the pod where the, every man there was under a life sentence. Nobody was getting out. There were murderers, right, making up the congregation. Just like this morning. And yet they knew it. And when they sang Amazing Grace, you knew they believed in Amazing Grace and delighted in the mercy of God. If you find someone who loves Jesus deeply, it's because they've been forgiven much. Have you ever wondered why you don't seem to love Jesus all that much? You believe in him. You want to serve him. But you sense that, that there are people who just have a deeper delight in Jesus than you do, who have a, uh, just a greater joy in him, a, a deeper hunger to know him, a, a greater passion to serve him. They, they just love Jesus. Oh, they love Jesus. Why do they love him so much? Because they've been forgiven much. And they know it. 
They're willing to recognize they got nothing to bring. They're the prostitute coming to Jesus. They got nothing to offer. And, and yet Jesus has poured out love and grace upon them. And, and they were in captivity to their sin, in bondage to their pride. And yet Jesus has set them free. And they were blind to the glory of God and captivated by all the passing idols of this world. And Jesus gave them eyes to see. And they could not hear the word of God. They knew their theology, but they didn't hear the gospel. And suddenly it broke through. And their ears were opened. Opened, and their heart was expanded and suddenly they saw Jesus, the very Son of God. Jesus, the one who never sinned. Jesus loving them before the foundation of the world. And Jesus offering his life on their behalf. His blood for their guilt and his life for their everlasting resurrection. And they love Jesus. They love Jesus. Maybe we've lost sight of the beauty and the glory, the magnificence of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. It means they've already been forgiven. She loves much. The sins are forgiven. He says it so that everybody in that room knows the truth about this woman. And that she can walk away with absolute assurance that now she's been in the presence of Jesus and she leaves reconciled with God. No condemnation. And Jesus says to you, your faith has saved you. Not your tears, not your devotion, not your worship, your faith. As she confessed the truth about herself, was willing to expose herself before the world, she didn't care. And she did not care that people knew she loved Jesus. Can you just imagine this scene of a woman in that day and age, a sinful woman with her hair hanging down, washing her face the feet of Jesus, kissing them continually and anointing them with oil. She doesn't care because she loves Jesus. And she receives the benediction, go in peace. At peace with God, fully reconciled to him, fully assured of his love, fully confident of his grace, smiling upon her for all the rest of her life and forever in glory. Friend, do you know those words? Do you know that benediction? Has that been applied to your life? So many Christians don't because we don't confess the truth. We don't cast ourselves before Jesus with our, with our murder and our adultery and our lying and our coveting, our stealing. We don't, we don't confess the truth. We don't, we don't just lay it out before him. We don't care who knows. We don't care who sees. We just want Jesus and so this morning, the invitation of Luke chapter 7 is that this Jesus, friends, is the Jesus of Scripture. And this is the Jesus that's speaking to you through his word and by his spirit. This Jesus is inviting you to come to him maybe in a brand new way. That you don't rest in just being a church Christian. You don't rest in the things that you profess to believe. You rest in nothing whatsoever but the person of Jesus Christ. The love and the grace of God made manifest for sinners. And you begin to walk this path of honesty, openness, just letting, letting people know, I am the sinner who needs Jesus. And you will be amazed at the love that you begin to experience for Christ as you confess the truth to him and as you put aside your fear of what people think or say, as you simply allow the grace of God to be manifest to you, the sinner. And you begin to let people know, I love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Those who've been forgiven much, 
love much. May we be profoundly people in love with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you know our hearts and you know we love so many things. We love sports and we love success. We love friends. We love sex. We love our reputation. And Jesus, far too often we don't love you. Oh, but I thank you, Jesus, that there is a place we can run to, that you are made present in your word. And just as this woman heard that Jesus was at Simon's house, God, we, we've heard that Jesus is here. And so we come to confess the truth about ourselves, and we come to, to receive grace grace for sinners. Jesus, you know every heart in this room. And you are the great physician and we need you to diagnose our need and show it to us and then bring us to the cross. Father, some here this morning have never ever confessed their sin to Jesus in a saving way. They've never acknowledged their need. And they sense that something is lacking, something's not right. They don't, they don't truly love Jesus. They the truth is they just don't. And yet they sense that without him, there's no hope in life. Jesus, I, I pray that that person, those persons would have the, the freedom today to let go of their fear, let go of their pride, and come to Jesus, admitting their need, confessing their sin, their guilt. It doesn't matter what people think or say. They're done pretending. They want to know Jesus and they want to love him. And Lord, there's so many of us here this morning who, oh, we see this woman. Jesus, we want to be like her. We just want to be like her. What a, what a joy to be free from our reputation, to be free from fear of people and, and just to come to Jesus and worship and hear his benediction spoken over our life in a way that sets us free. And so, God, we've, we've come asking for the, the deepest things this morning. We don't want to pretend. We don't want to, we don't want to be simply witnesses to the grace of God. We want to be those who taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so, Jesus, lead your people in our hearts here this morning, in our hearts in our private times of confession and worship before you, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week. Father, we want to come to Jesus and live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.